Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to Poetry in Motion Cowboy Podcast. I've got another special guest with me today. One of the UBF Freestyle Bullfighters. Also going to be fighting some PRCA Pro Rodeos this coming year. Uh, Mr. Tucker Lane. How you doing, Tucker? Oh, I've been better, obviously. Um, but still making it around. Alright, so the, the big... The big question that you probably don't want to talk about, but I gotta ask anyway, what happened to you to your uh, leg there? Why you got a cast on? So I broke my ankle three weeks ago. Uh, I was working the college rodeo in Lubbock. Um, I had a bull just really uh, not wanting to buck, put me in a really bad situation, and uh, and then when when he hooked me, he broke my ankle, and uh, so put me out at pretty much the worst time of the year. Missing all the big events here in December, but yep. you know, you know what they they all say, you know, and there's always next year, and everything else that they say along with something like this. Yeah, but that really doesn't make you feel better. No, it doesn't make me feel better. You know, um, I will say that's it's been extremely tough mentally yep. trying to deal with something like this. Like, uh, you know, everyone talks about the mental toughness of trying to be a bullfighter, and I always thought that you had to be mentally tough to be a good bullfighter. Well, you gotta be mentally tough to be a hurt bullfighter. Yeah, because for sure. you've got no money coming in, and I mean, everything you know is gone. You know, I don't know how yeah. to do anything else, and so I just lay around, basically waiting to get better so I can go back to work. Yeah, but that so that brings up something. The way, well, to to back up a little bit, I guess if you guys didn't know. I used to fight bulls some, not to the level that, that Tucker and these guys are at, but um, I, I freestyled, uh, worked some cowboy protection, so I kind of understand uh, some, of, some of the stuff they're going through and they're talking about. But the neat thing of how I had an opportunity to meet Tucker um, was we got to, a chance to meet through Rodeo Bible Camp and um, from the arena to the cross, Rodeo Bible Camp, Joe and, and Kayla Kissel. So that was where I really got to meet Tucker and see him and, and see how he interacted with people, see how he fought bulls, see him teach others to fight bulls. And so this is definitely a time where I would say your your career, your passion, your, your fighting definitely overlaps with, with your faith or with some testing of your faith. Right. Well, it's it's interesting because, you know, I, uh, I have a lot of... Um, there's a lot more to uh, bullfighting than, you know, it affects my life a lot more than I think it does a lot of other people. Because, I mean, it is my day job. You know, it's what I do for a living. And, you know, that's it. I don't have a nine to five or anything like that. It, you know, I'm on a scholarship for a college rodeo team because I fight bulls. Yep. I have coaching responsibilities to the college to teach other guys to fight bulls. I have uh, coaching jobs for Lyle Sankey all year long to teach people to fight bulls. It, it, you know, it's what I do, it's what I eat, sleep, and breathe, and so, um, you know, it, it has been a huge, you know, a huge testing of my, of my faith and where I stand with, with this injury, especially with the time it is, um, you know, this has been, you know, I'm just now 22, and this has been the first year I've ever competed for a world title, I've never done that before, I've always been within the top 10, but, um, I was third in the world this year, going into the last three events of the, of the year, and I was the last guy with a statistical chance of winning the world. You know, so obviously it wasn't cut and dry like I was going to win, but I had never had a chance before. Yep. And then for it to just be taken, 
was really tough and something that I, I mean, it probably took, you know, almost a month to, to cope with. Yeah. Yeah. That would, I was fortunate to not ever be in that situation. Part of the reason I was never in that situation was because I was never in contention <laughs> for a world title, but that's definitely something with, with rodeo. Like you say, if somebody else had just a regular nine to five job, like you can break your leg and still go sit at the desk mm -hmm. and people always say when something gets taken away from you, like, they, they want to say that's what you do. It's not who you are right. and try to separate the two. But um, for somebody like you, I mean, it, it it is who you are. Exactly. And so that that fills you up. Like the only identity you have other than, than fighting bulls is, is just that you're a believer in Christ. And so that, I mean, hate to say that anything good would come of a broken leg, but the Bible does say, God uses all things for the good of, of those who believe and are called by his name. And, and uh, like, I know you'd like to be out there competing and, and right. winning, and we'd all like to, to be watching you, but you also got a chance here to be a, a really good um, mentor or example, witness, however you want to look right. at it for some people. I think that's been the biggest thing is just it adds a lot of perspective because, um, you know, if anything within this, I've learned a lot of lessons. One, um, the price of me fighting bulls has gone up tremendously, yep. and I've learned the value of my job. Yep. Because, um, you know, one thing in the bullfighter is you're self-employed, and you get to choose your own price. And sometimes when you're first learning, it's really difficult to find out what you're worth because nobody yep. in the business will tell you. Yep. You know, so you have to go, you have to basically go, and you have to figure it out. And I feel like a lot of guys, the way they start out is they get ripped off by old contractors who know they can get away with it, and, and that's the game we live in. Yep. And so, unfortunately, if you're not one of the top guys in the world, you're losing jobs to guys who are working for cheap because yep. you don't, you either don't know your value or you do, and people will go around it. And, you know, uh, with, it, with me having this happen, especially at this time of the year, you know, being out of a paycheck for the next at least 10 weeks, yep. you know, I've learned how important my job is and how much it really is valuable because it only takes one bull yep. and you're done and so uh, that's you know that's kind of been where I'm trying to be like at least I learned this lesson um, of how much I'm worth and yep. uh, that's kind of where I'm at moving forward it's it's funny that, that you talk about guys coming in there and doing it for cheap because when I got started working protection I was the guy working by myself $75 a night setting up back pens feeding bulls sorting bronx working a strip and shoot untying calves all of that just for an opportunity to, to get out there and you right. you think you think that like i'm going to be humble i'm going to go in there just because i want right. to fight bulls so bad right. but then what guys don't realize and what i didn't realize at that time is it's super hard to ever climb from there because mm -hmm. every stock contractor or rodeo committee that looks at you mm -hmm. is always going to see you as that cheap guy out there right. untying calves and feeding right and and I was the same way. I mean, yep. you know, when I first started, I was a 16-year-old kid. I was I was going to high school every week, but I had 80 performances a year yeah. for a contractor. But I was only making $75 a night doing all of the extra work. And I, you know, in high school, it wasn't that bad because I was yeah. making money because I didn't have any bills. I lived with my, you know, I lived at home. You know, I had I had it all taken care of. But um, the thing is, as you grow as a bullfighter and as you start to, um, you know. Start to think higher of yourself and start to think maybe I'm worth a little bit more money than that. 
you do, you don't know how much. Yeah. You know, and it's and it works that way in everything, in the jobs you work, in the sponsors you partner with, and everything is like you don't know what you're worth. And every time that you try to raise your price, there's almost this uh, subconscious questioning of, yep. am I really worth that? Is that too much? You know, and um, we face rejection a lot of times when we say, no, this is what I want. Yep. And because we're so eager, because we love this sport so much, we're willing to weaken on that premise. And as soon as you weaken on what you think you're worth, you're not worth anything. Yeah, man. I've, so I run into the same thing with starting Colts. Like there's guys that are getting twelve hundred a month. There's guys that are getting thousand a month. I'm charging seven fifty, and I know there's people that are only charging five hundred. But like, there's a little bit of self doubt there. Of if I say I'm going to charge nine hundred a month from now on, am I going to go broke because nobody thinks I'm good enough? Nobody thinks I'm worth that to keep sending me horses. But then you also get into that where there's some people looking at you, saying he's not charging enough. You get what you pay for. He must not be any good. Right. And then you get the other people that are just want to take advantage of you that think you're charging too much, and it's, yeah, yeah it messes with your head too. And that's that is the world that we live in, you know. And everybody's always going to look for those cheap cuts and those way outs. And um, you know, if if there's one thing I would change about our business is I would make it to where more people were willing to help out. You know, I yep. can remember several times when I was trying to learn how to, you know, work with sponsors and everything else like that. Um, reaching out to those guys who had won world championships and say, hey, you know, when you were here, when you were at my spot, what did you charge? And the guy, all he could tell me was, you know, just pick a number and stick with it. And I'm yeah. like, man, like, that doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know what this is, you know. And, and then, like, I remember I went to my first sponsor. I said, here's what I want to make this year. And they were going, okay, no problem. I'm like, oh, no. Should I have said more? Right. Should I have said less? You know, and... and and that's something that we deal with all the time. And um, but you know, and it's hard. You have to learn to be a businessman. Um, you know, I've learned uh, an. Inc- I mean, I guess I've done this for five years now. Um, between the amateur rodeos I've done and then freestyle and everything else, and I've learned so much about how to run my social media, how to work with sponsors. Um, you know, I sell my own merchandise now. Yep. All of these things, and like, whenever you go to a, the Whenever you go to a bullfight school, this is all things that they don't teach you. And so that's why I'm so passionate about trying to teach other people right. and coaches because, like, I want to teach you stuff that they're not going to teach you at a two-day bullfighting school because you're going to show up. You're going to pay anywhere from 400 to $650 to learn how to fight bulls in two days. And then you're going to leave there thinking you know what's going right. on, and in reality, you don't. Yeah. And, and, you know, and that's something you don't figure out for, I mean, after years of doing it. You know, I'm still learning every day that I get to go out there and... And not just about how to fight bulls in the arena, because, I mean, that's that's the easy part. You yeah. know, trying to handle the business world that comes along with rodeo, that's it's tough. Yeah. So, we almost ended up getting into this backwards. Like, we talked about all the other stuff first, but how did, wh- why would you even want to start fighting bulls? Like, the actual in the arena, getting your hands on them, where did that come from? Well, um, honestly, it's, it's all I've really ever done is rodeo. Yeah. You know, um... I don't have very many memories from before I was about nine, and uh, my parents named me after Lane Frost, and you know when I figured that out, I wanted to rodeo. It wasn't a question. I actually I wanted to be a tie down roper. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go rope kid, and um, 
Did the so, mullet create too much wind resistance? Couldn't get down the rope actually, fast enough? I didn't I didn't grow mullets after I graduated high school. I okay. had a buzz cut all through high school because I wrestled and I was really good at that. There you too. go. Okay. But, um, no, and I, want, I wanted to rope calves, and so my parents bought me horses and everything else like that. And my brother, he wanted to be a bull rider. And so, um, you know, we started getting into youth, these youth rodeo organizations. Well, um, you know, my brother, if my brother was going to ride, I wanted to ride, but I, I wanted to rope calves. That wasn't a question. And so I started riding these horses. Well, not six months after I started trying to learn to ride horses, we had a horse that, come to find out later, was blind oh. and could see shit. She had, she had spooked on me and, and fallen over backwards. Well, I was skinny enough. Um, I only weighed probably 55 pounds, 60 pounds at the time. So I fit between the, the tree of the saddle and the saddle horn. And so I actually didn't get hurt at all, but it had scared me enough that I was done. I didn't want anything to do with horses, and still to this day, I have a very big trust issue with horses. But, um, you know, I started riding uh, steers and junior bulls and working my way from there. And uh, right about the time I got to be 16, I still wasn't where I wanted to be with riding bulls. And I knew that, and I was taking a butt kicking along the way. But I was, I was never one to quit. And so one, um, one year, I was going to rodeo Bible camp, because that's another thing I've done my entire life. You know, um, since I was nine, you know, you go to Road Bible Camp every year. It's just part of it. And uh, I was going to Road Bible Camp, and I just was like, you know what? Let's just try something new at camp yep. because it's no harm, no foul. I can still enter all the bull ridings and whatnot. And so uh, I put bullfighting down because I had seen some kids try it before, and it looked like it was not awful. You know, it didn't look like it was any worse. And um, just immediately I, I took to it. I was I was so... Um, I wasn't as aggressive as I would like to think that I was, but I wasn't, I wasn't scared, right? Yeah. I mean, and I can remember the first time I absolutely just got, you know, hooked and launched and all it did was fire me up and I was excited about it. And like, I just knew I was like, this is what I was supposed to do. And still, every time I go in the arena, whether I'm, uh, you know, 90 points or I just, you know, I get hooked down by one and even being disappointed, there's never been a question, you know, I'm supposed to do anything else. The do you think that getting on bulls before you started fighting, do you think that helps with some of your anticipation and reading, like Ab your dismount position? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, when I teach when I teach bullfighting, anticipation is one of the huge things, especially in in protection bullfighting. You know, uh, Be because good, you've got right. you got to kind of know where that guy's going to land to put yourself between there right, and hit exactly. your gap. Yeah, the that's the that's the difference between good bullfighters and great bullfighters, and you know. Um, those guys that you guys see at the PBRs on TVs every week, and those guys are great. They're four of the best in the world, and so you don't really recognize it. But when you get to go to these pro rodeos, there's definitely good bullfighters, right. and there's great bullfighters, and there's even some that aren't very good yep. at these pro rodeos. And, you know, if a guy's there but where a guy's going to fall off before the guy even falls off, that's a guy who's going to go far and has studied the game and is putting in the work, you know, like not just showing up and fighting bulls on the weekend. That guy's putting in film study and time right. and – and trying to figure out stuff like that, you know, I mean, um, those guys on the PBR tour, they, I mean, they've got it made. They're seeing the same guys every week, you know. They know what these guys are good at, what these yep. guys are bad at, you know, where their tendencies are and, and the way they ride. So, it, you know, if a certain guy is out of the ordinary, they're going to know immediately. Yep. And that's, that's going to play to their advantage. And that's that's something I try to teach my college students, you know, like, um, while, while I teach the two, the two bullfighting students, I also teach the bull riding because... Um, no one's got a better view right. of the bull ride than I do. You know, if you're out of position, 
I know you're bucked off before you're bucked off. And so I don't mind taking the time to tell, you know, tell a guy, yep. hey, you know, you've got to get off your butt because it's a dead giveaway to me that you're going to come off, you know, and that's something you've got to fix. And so um, it adds, it definitely adds a new perspective to our college rodeo team. You know, my college rodeo coaches are super huge fans of having me there just because it's a perspective that people don't get. You know, a lot of people, when they want to go learn to ride bulls, they wouldn't think to learn it from a bullfighter. Yeah. But actually, while I was growing up learning, a bullfighter was teaching me. And I was, um, I wasn't great, but I wasn't awful. Yeah. You know, and, and that film study and that learning of, of, you know, seeing what it looked like I, has done tremendous things for me in the arena. Well, that was, I, I never wanted to be a bull rider. I always wanted to fight bulls, but... I made myself, you know, I didn't get on very many. I got on 10 or 15, but I wanted to know everything about it. I wanted to know what was going on while that guy's taking his rap. Like, I wanted to know all of it. And then just like you talked about, like, you can see a guy's hips get out of position. You can see his free arm get behind him. You can see all that stuff, and, and you know what's you right. know what's coming. Exactly. But, so for you, did it, and I, I know you started off at Rodeo Bible Camp, and at Rodeo Bible Camp, you get a pretty good mix of both. Like, you're working cowboy protection, but you get to go to some and make rounds too. Right. For for me, it definitely started off as all cowboy protection, and then because I I fell in that gap between the PRCA quit the Wrangler bullfights and the UBF BFO none of that stuff had kicked off yet. So there was maybe five good bullfights a year. Right. So for me, it was cowboy protection for a long time, and I actually went to a Sankey school in Fort Scott. And that was the first time I had stepped around any Mexican fighting bulls. Oh, uh, Matt Williams brought yep. some bulls oh, over Matt. there. And he, like, we fought a bunch of calves the first few days, and it was awesome. Like, I thought I was somebody. And then the last night, he brought in an old smart bull, kind of bait up in the corner, and just hooked the dog snot out of me for 70 seconds. Yeah. But anyway, so for me, it started off cowboy protection, then got into the freestyle. Which way did it start for you? And, well, then I'll, then I'll ask you some more about that. Well, um, mine was not too eerily different. So I had actually never heard of freestyle bullfighting when I decided I wanted to be a bullfighter. But, um, you know, to me it was just bullfighting. Yeah. The way they teach you at camp is you just go fight bulls. Yeah. You know, it didn't matter if the guy, you know, if the guy was on it, you just stayed out of his way until the guy got off. And then once the guy got off, you just fought the bull. Yeah. Didn't matter if you were saving the guy or if you were out in the middle by yourself or if you had a partner. All you did was fight the bull and I... I'm so thankful that I learned that way because, well, you know, my biggest pet peeve, and, and when me and Noah, me and Noah Krebs, when we get to teaching, this is the first thing we tell all of our students is, man, if you believe that you're a freestyle guy or you're a protection guy, you just got the wrong mindset. Yep. And, you know, and I'll tell every bullfighter that in the entire world. I don't, you know, um, there's a reason the guys going to the NFR every year or going to the NFR every year, and it's because they're bullfighters. They're yep. not protection guys. They're bullfighters. Yep. Cody Webster, to this day, could go enter any freestyle he wanted and compete to win. Right. And that's the way it is. You know, and th that's that's just, that's the way that those guys saw it, and that's what makes you the best. You know, yep. nobody who shows up and says, well, I'm a freestyle guy or I'm a protection guy is going to be the best ever. Yep. And so I'm so thankful I learned that way. But um, when I first started fighting bulls and I got my first job, you know, like I said, I was working 80 performances a year. And, uh... I mean, every weekend we had, you know, two-day, three-day show. Yep. And um, so I was going, and, um, you know, that was that was 2016, so that was the first year that the BFO had went to Vegas. 
And one of the guys that I was fighting bulls with, who was my protection partner, he was entered there at the BFO in Vegas. And so that's kind of where I learned about freestyle bullfighting. And then I actually went to a Sankey school, and that's where I fought my first Mexican. Yep. And uh, mine was in Humansville, Missouri. And I was, I was, honestly, I was scared. I was terrified to fight the Mexican. Um, but the the guy who had, had uh, brought me, because I, I couldn't afford to go on my own. So I was actually there with the contractor that I was working the rodeo for. Yep. And he's like, no, I paid for you to be here. You're going to fight the Mexican. And I, I mean, I handled it just fine. And uh, so um, two or three months go by after this Sankey school, and my protection partner calls me and said, hey, there's a spot open in this freestyle in Mercedes, Texas. You know, I'll pay your entry fees. You can ride down with me. He's like, the only thing I ask is if you win any money, pay me back. Yep. And I didn't realize how much faith that guy had in me at the time. Because to me, it was just he was just being a nice guy because he didn't yeah. want to go by himself. And, you know, now I look back at it, and the reason he said that is because he knew that I was going to win some money. Yep. He had, and he'll, he'll tell you to this day that he, he knew from the first time we fought Bulls together that I just, I had something. Yep. And uh, I'm thankful that he was there to push me along the way. But I, I showed up, and the Bulls that were there, they were at the BFO Finals in 2017. Yep. And so this is January of 2018, so it's been three weeks since these guys were fighting against the best guys in the world. But the only difference was I didn't know. Yeah. And so I handled it fine and won the event. Yep. And, you know, after it was done, the guys sat me down like, you don't understand. You just went toe-to-toe with the best fighting bulls in the business. Yep. Like, this is what you're going to do. And so um, the guy who put it on was a guy named Robert Blue Jean, And he has basically taken over as uh, one of my mentors, you know, um, and helped coach me in the right way. He helped me get my PRCA permit. He's helped me get some pro rodeos and uh, has just done tremendous things for me in my career. And he said, you're going to go far, kid. And uh, He invited me to two more of his amateur bullfights, and I won both of those. And, and then after that, I got a message from uh, Luke Kaufman, who was uh, in charge of the BFO at the time. And uh, after, I mean, I showed up there. And my first BFO was in Ada, Oklahoma in 2018. Um, this was in April. And I, uh, the first round was just a qualifier round. It was a bunch of uh, rookies. Um, we all went on to be the best guys going now. But at the time, yeah. no, nobody knew who any of us were. You know, Chance Mormon was there. Cole Oder was there. Um, me, Chase Blythe. You know, all basically the top, you know, five or six out of the top ten guys going right now were all just qualifiers at that event. And uh, so I won my qualifier round against, you know, some really good competition. Well, then I drew in a round with Dusty Tuckness, Tanner Zarnetsky, and Zach Call. And all three of those guys were fighting bulls when you were fighting bulls. Yep. And are all three incredibly good. And yeah. I was like, I don't know how you can stack the deck against me any more than this. And, you know, I was a huge Dusty Tuckness fan at the time. So just being in the same locker room with, with him yep. was a game changer, let alone being in this round. And it was actually a huge joke between me and my uncle leading up to it. Because we're a month before the show, and all I'm talking about is I'm going to go win this event. Because I'm not showing up to lose. Well, then they announced that Dusty Tuckness is coming out of retirement to enter this event. And I'm like, I'm going to go take second at this event. <laughs> and then he drew it around with me. And I was like, this is this is crazy. You know what yeah. I'm saying? So, And then I ended up actually winning that round. I beat Dusty Tuggins. I, I just drew a better bull than he did. Yeah. And uh, I give him crap about it to this day. Um, you know, he let the rookie win. And um, I ended up drawing uh, the Unicorn, who was a reserve champion fighting bull of the year in the championship round. And yeah. um, just did enough to survive. Because that was a step of bull that I was not prepared for. Right. Um, but I mean, you know, I was 
that's, I mean, that was pretty much the fast track of my career right there. Within, you know, from January to April, I had gone from my first amateur bullfight to the championship round at the highest level, fighting the reserve champion bull of the year. And uh, I ended up third at the event, and so it put me fifth in the world standings. And ever since then, I've just been, uh, I've been on the professional tour, and I've been traveling with uh, world champions. And, you know, you know what they say, if you travel with world champions, yep. you're bound to become one. And that's just... Luckily, that's where my career has been because uh, because I had so much success early. Yeah, you, you talked about about Webster about him being able to go in a, a bullfight somewhere and win it. But all three guys at the NFR this year, you got Tuck, Webster, and Harp. Yeah, and all three of them have kicked my butt at one point or another at a bullfight and still could right. to oh, this day. Yeah, no, absolutely. But um, but they're they're fundamentals. Like they're aggressive. They go to bulls. They understand bulls. They know how to get around them. Know how to keep them engaged. Like, all of the things you need to be a good protection guy are the same things you need to be a good freestyle guy. Right. You just... The, the easiest way to explain bullfighting to someone who doesn't understand it is the best bullfighters in the world, you could pick out a spot. You could darken the whole arena and put a spotlight in the middle of the arena and say, I want you to put the bull in this spot, and they could do it. Yep. And that, that's all it is. It's either dragging a bull away from a cowboy or dragging it to my left and my right. Yep. That's That's all it is. And, uh, you know... We can give it all these cool names and everything else with the capes and the reverses, but all it is is how well can I control the bull? How, can I move him to my left? Can I move him to my right? And can I move him away from that guy? And if you can do those three things, you can, you can fight bull. My thing that I ran into a lot, like, I don't, I don't think I was mentally tough enough. You talked about mental toughness earlier. I don't think I was mentally tough enough to go to the next level. Like, I had a little bit of athletic ability. I kind of knew what was going on, had a little bit of success. But I would I would overthink things. I'd do the whole paralysis by analysis thing. And freestyling, freestyling really good, hot Mexican bulls anyway, got to be easier for me than working protection because working protection, you get to decide whether or not you go in there. Like, you can absolutely just stand back and watch somebody take a hooking. Mm -hmm. if, if your heart ain't in it and you chicken out, like, you're not ever going to get hired again. But you have that choice. Right. When you, especially have a shotgun shoot, when you call for one of them really good hot bulls, they take all the choice away from you. Right. And they bring the fight to you. And so, because, like, because I was scared, because I couldn't get my mind in it, if I could just get myself to nod and call for one, then I didn't have to think anymore. You know, and there, there's a mental f side of bullfighting that, like, I feel like everybody knows is there because it does take a, you know, there's got to be something different about you to be able to do this sport consistently. But um, the two things that have always been able to carry me through, um, the first one is, and I don't remember who it was who told me this, um, I'd like to say it was probably Justin Josie. And he just, he just made it real simple. He said, the bull doesn't care. Yeah. And he said, he told me that when I was a rookie. And even now that I'm, you know, I've been top five in the world, it's been something I've carried with me because I do miss the times where I was the nobody, where I yeah. had everything to win and nothing to lose. And now I draw into rounds with these kids who are, are young rookies who are young up and coming, you know, and they, they're like, they look at me like, like I'm larger than life. And it's a really cool feeling because you do want to be that, you want to be that legend among men. But at the same time, I'm just a 22-year-old kid from Missouri, yep. you know, and that's all I, you know, uh, Weston Rakowski, when I first started, told me we're all just kids from somewhere, yep. and so I've always remembered the bull doesn't care. He doesn't care how many world championships you've won. 
He doesn't care if it's your first time. He doesn't care if it's your thousandth time. Yep. He's got one thing, one goal in his mind is to go out there and make your day a whole lot worse. And so that I've carried that with me everywhere, and that's just been my go-to of, you know, here, you know, Will doesn't care. I got to do my job. The job doesn't change. It doesn't matter if the dirt sucks. It doesn't yep. matter if I blow in a cleat, if I'm sore, if I'm tired. None of that matters. The bull does not care. Yep. And, and you know, the other thing that I always struggled with and, and I just kind of talked about was, you know, I was in the locker room with guys like Ross Hill and yeah. Toby Inman as a, an 18, 19-year-old kid, and it was so difficult to try to live up to their standard. Yep. You know, I wanted to do things right. I wanted to make sure that I looked professional. I wanted to make sure I acted right. Yeah. And, you know, because those guys were my heroes. And I got to sit down with Ross um, about three weeks before he died. Yeah. And, he, you know, he asked, he said, what's one thing you struggle with? And the biggest thing that I struggled with in the arena was believing that I belonged with those legends. Yeah. And he was like, you have to understand that you, to some of these kids, are a legend. Yeah. You know, in every arena you go to, no matter what event you're in, there's always going to be a kid looking up to you. And realizing that I had that opportunity to be a role model the same way those guys were to me yeah. meant so much. And it was just a little bit of perspective that yeah. I needed. And so having that um, along with knowing, you know, that my job will never change no matter the situation had been the two things that have kind of carried me on and allowed me to stay excited about yeah. it. That's, I, when, when I first started going... The locker room was one of the hardest places for me. And now, looking back, it's probably the part that I miss. I, I would be way too scared to step out and call for a bull right now. But I miss traveling and being in the locker room. But when I first started, so Andy Burrell was still, he was still fighting. He wasn't right. working the barrel yet. And like Andy would wear it like a badge of honor if he heard me say that he was a jerk. Like, he, yeah. does, he doesn't mind. Like, yeah. he'll own up to it. And he would absolutely. So we're at, we're at Lubbock one year. Kevin Rich has got the bulls. One of my first bull fights, I draw this little weak calf in a long round. And, like, I went to him, and I thought I made a good bull fight. The next day, we come back, and Andy's sitting there talking to Kevin. And he looks up, and he sees me, and he acts like he doesn't see me. And he looks back down at Kevin and said, Man, that bull last night in the first round, he was weak. Like, he was junk. He was no good. He was duh, duh, duh. And he goes, but he's about all that punk kid could handle. And I was like, Man, it tore me down. Like, I was so scared, nervous, everything. But, like, looking back, I know what he was. Like, he was just right. playing mind games. But once I got past that to where the mind games didn't bother me as bad, I remember at, well, at Warica, we were at Rex Dunn's house one time. And there wasn't a locker room there, but we had a little trailer we was getting dressed in. And it was the first time I'd ever heard that um, God's Not Dead song mm -hmm. by the Newsboys. And Tuck was blaring it while he was getting dressed. And so, like, half the guys are sitting around, and they're cussing and telling stories about what they did the night before and stuff. And here's Tuck, who is, like, in my opinion, one of the baddest dudes to ever strap on a pair of cleats. Mm -hmm. And he's just jamming out to some contemporary Christian, you know, like, not at all ashamed of who he is, nothing. Right. So, you had that was huge for me. Like, that was a huge builder for my faith or for my ability like it's okay to be a christian here right. and that's who that guy is all the time you yeah. know um i've gotten to spend a lot of time with tuck uh, behind the scenes um we went into john harrison's house uh when covid first yeah. happened and spent five or six days at their house just kind of 
quarantining from the world because yep. we didn't want to deal with it. You know, when Justin Rumford was there and, and you know, that guy is, is all business all the time, you know, yep. and, and he has a blast with it, but he's really, you know, and obviously he doesn't listen to you, so I'm yeah. not worried about saying it, but he, uh, you know, he is 100% Christian and, and stands by that and tries to live a great example and, you know, um, he has fun for sure, but, like, nobody works harder. Yeah. Like, this guy gets up before everybody else does a workout in the house and then, like, goes back to bed. And then when everybody else gets up, does a workout. Right. Just so everybody knows he did it. Yeah. Like, and, like, yep. you know, his warm-up would make me tired. And right. It's just the way. I mean, he's a machine. You know, he's crazy. But, no, it's it's funny you talk about all those great times in the locker room and whatnot because uh, the, the last school we went to, uh, Cody Webster was teaching it. Um obviously because um, the, Ross Hill was the teacher of all the UBF camps, and then yep. he passed uh, early this, this year. Um, so Cody Webster took over, and he was teaching the school, and he said, man, the biggest thing is you just got to know how to have fun. He's like, those guys that go out there and talk about, like, act like these professional athletes, like, oh, man, I can't be eating pizza or, or stuff like that. He's like, man, just be a kid. Have some fun. He's like, we used to go play laser tag the day of the bullfight yep. and stuff. And he's like, man, you'd show up with a hurt ankle from playing laser tag. Who cared about your bull? Yep. You know, he's like, and we were, you know, drinking soda pop and eating pizza, just having a great time because we were just excited to be there. Yep. And, you know, I think uh, that's been a, a super big thing because, I mean, in, in reality, not everybody gets to do what we do. And it's yeah. so fun, you know, just getting to go out there and, and really be a clown, you know, yeah. being wear makeup and and be something that's larger than life, you know. Uh, Andy North he said uh, in an interview, what makes our job so cool is the average Joe is paying money to see people do what he can. Yeah. And so he's like, so if you go out there and you do what anybody can do, yeah. the show sucks. And so yeah. you know, and Toby Inman, uh, he always said, uh, if you can't win the money, you know sell tickets and so i've always just tried to go out there and make sure that i win the crowd because without the crowd we don't have jobs yeah and you know you want to go out there and you want to do something that not everybody can do yeah you know whether it's just go out there and get hooked up you know get get the tar hooked out of you and stand up like nothing happened or or go do some cool trick or you know go put on a bullfight you know all of those things are really important in trying to build a build a character you know um one thing that i've learned in the business is uh the more recognizable you are, yep. the easier it is in order to have success. And it doesn't really make sense because you think that the way you dress and the way you act doesn't affect your score. But, you know, in my time of fighting bulls, I've grown out of mullet. Yep. I am decked out like an evil Knievel descendant in red, white, and blue. Yep. And there are people who travel all over the country to watch bullfights, and they know me by name. Whether yep. I'm wearing my makeup or not, they know who I am. Yep. And so, you know, they're fans of it. They genuinely want to know how I am. How am I doing, you know? And stuff like that, it means a lot to a guy and pushes you to go far. But if I wasn't recognizable, if yep. I didn't put my makeup on the same way every time, if I didn't wear a recognizable shirt, if I didn't do something to separate myself from the rest of the bullfighters, yep. I'm just another kid, you know? And so, um, you know, whenever I get a chance to give advice to young kids, the first thing I would always say is, one, you have to remember the bull doesn't care. I can't stress that enough because, you know, it's, that's kind of a big thing that you can carry into everyday life when you run into one of those problems, you know, that's something that may be a little bit smaller on your radar, but it's really messing you up, you know. People don't care. Yep. You know, the rest of your life, you, your job doesn't change because of that problem, you know. So that's 
that's always in my head. You know, no matter what the circumstances are, my job doesn't change. The bull doesn't care. And then the other thing is, is be different. Yeah. You know, do mm-hmm. something to separate yourself from everybody else. And you can do that whether you're a flute player yeah. or a bullfighter or anything else. You know, I mean, what what makes J.B. Mooney the symbol that he is? You know, it's not that he's the most consistent bull rider of all time. Yeah. You know, I love the guy to death, but that ain't it. You know, he's, um, but he's he's a character. Yeah. He shows up. He's got the same cowboy hat on every time. He gets bumbles the same song every time. He's going to go out there. He's going to, whether he's, he's going to limp away because he can't walk, and he's going to give it all he's got. And, you yeah. know, and people recognize that. Um, he wears, I mean, I'm pretty sure he's had the same black felt since I started rooting for him in 2009. Yep. But you know who it is. You know, he's got the same feather. Um, Sage Kimsey's got the same gold ruffy symbol everywhere yep. on his helmet. You know, these guys have symbols. And, like, a lot of people would think, well, you wouldn't do something. They don't do that on purpose. No, I promise you yeah, they do. Absolutely. You know, Fallon Taylor became the world's most influential barrel racer of all time because she was wearing tie-dye pants. Yep. And it was that simple. That la- launched her. Into being, and I mean, to this day, a me- social media influencer yeah. and have an impact on so many different kids just because she's wearing tie dye pants. And, you know, in a world where social media is such a huge tool, yeah. you know, all the way down to what you dress can go so far. Yeah. And it plays a huge part in, in your, your mental, too. Like I always said, if you dress good, you feel good. If you feel good, you're going to fight good. And then, Jim McLean was one of the guys that kind of helped and kind of got me, kind of got me going. And we were at a bullfight one time, and I don't remember what I'd done. I'd like instead of just having my regular bandanas, I'd put like a real long silk one in the back or or something. Anyway, he said, if you're going to do something like that, if you're going to do something to be seen, mm-hmm. understand that you're going to be seen. Like if if you're just real mundane, you can kind of hide in the shadows. But if you're going to put yourself out there, like you when you show up. You're, like you said, your paint's always the same. You got the red, white, and blue. You got the mullet. Right. People know that it's you. Right. If you go out there and you do something stupid or you go out there and you half-hearted bullfight, everybody saw it. Everybody knows it was you. Well, not just that, but even it extends even farther. You know, if I show up and I look like crap, yep. you know, I'm in, you know, I look like crap. I look like I haven't slept. I, you know, I look, you know, that carries on to my fans. Well, they're not going to root for me. I look yeah. like, I don't look like I'm going to do any good, you know. If I, you know, not that there's anything wrong to, with going to an after party after the bullfights because I do love going to spend time with my boys, but if I'm out there drinking and being stupid and yeah. creating a bad image for myself, that goes incredibly far, you know, yeah. and I've got sponsors who are willing to pay to put their brand on me because I'm a good representation of that, and when you throw that away, yeah. you know, it, it throws so many things away, so it's not just that you, you know, you dress good and you feel good and you fight good, but you have to continue to have that same character about you. In everything you do and you know and uh, I say character because for me it's it's almost like there's two sides of me yeah because you know I'm not dressing like that to get up and go to class at college <laughs> you know I'm not you know I'm not combing my mullet and making sure that it looks decent yeah. to go to class yeah, it definitely you looks know? like it's been a while since you brushed it and that well I'm a broken ankle <laughs> but um, you know that but there's a switch you know I get to flip a switch I get to become this character you know and it's almost like you get to put on a mask when you put the face paint on the person that you have to be every day that has to you know 
deal with worldly problems that has to deal with politics yeah. and news and social media and all of this stuff that drags everybody down on a daily basis gets to all just disappear and go away because I get to fight bullets. Yeah. And, you know, and I've always said that, you know, um, I had, the very first time I ever taught bulls, I connected with a kid and he had this, he had issues with his mom and him and his mom didn't get along. And, you know, I was going through something very similar at the time. And so I just took him to the arena, um, just me and him. And I said, I want you to know something. I said, I want you to look around and I want you to tell me what you see. And he's like, I see the arena. And I said, I want you to look closer because I see home. Yep. You know, this, no matter what's going on in my life, whether it's a, a bad breakup or, you know, um, the presidential election or any other stressful thing that's going on in my life, when I step into the arena, that all goes away. Yep. Not just because I want it to, but because it has to, because yep. my life is on the line. And I've always been so thankful of that that place that I can go. Not just like, you know, people always say go to your happy place. No, I have a physical place that I can show up at any time. Yep. And I'm home. You know, and and in my uh, it's I mean it's it's where I find God. It's yeah. plain, no, there's no other way to say it. It's just, that's where I find my peace. That's where I find my purpose. Yep. That's where I find my identity. And I truly believe that it's a God-given desire and a God-given platform to be able to share who I am and who Jesus is all the time. And I'm so thankful for a place like yep. that. You know, um, I mean, I can tell super cool stories you know, time and time again because of the people that I get to hang out with and because of the experiences I have. But it's as genuine as it like the easiest way it is to break it down is I just I have a happy place. That's not a place I have to go in my head. It's a it's a literal place yeah. and it's any time that I'm in a in dirt with fucking shoes. It's yeah. it's that simple. And so that's that's cool that you bring that up because like like I said, I was I was never the best freestyle guy going, but you take that and put it with what you said earlier about the fact that people are willing to pay to watch you do something that they would never do. There's a, not, not only is it home, not only is it your distraction and your passion, there's a pride that comes with just, just being willing to get out there, whether you win or not. There's, there's, I don't know how many, how many guys are going to the UBS now? There's probably 35 of us, maybe. In the entire stinking world. like, or Even if you just, just shut it down to our country. I don't know how many billion people live in the U.S. now, yeah. but 35 of them. Yeah. Maybe, there's, I would say there's less than 100 people in the country going consistently to freestyle bullfights. Right. Amateur, pro, across any association, and you're, you're one of those. And that was, that was something that I fell back on when I was having hard times. Like, I still got out there. Like that guy sitting up in the stands eating popcorn. Right. His I don't care if he boos me. His opinion really doesn't matter. Right. Because he's not out here. Well, and it's just it's so. I mean, all you got to do is I've got to lift a hand, and they're gonna cheer for it. And yep. you know, and and it's obviously it's not like that everywhere, but you know, I get to be who I want to be. Yep. And so I you know if I believe I'm Superman, I'm gonna sell to all these people that I'm Superman. Yeah. And you know I've always believed that if I believe it. They're gonna believe it. Yep. Not only that, but the bull's gonna believe it too. And you know, it, some to some people that sounds incredibly dumb, but I can assure you, when you go out there and you believe that you are the baddest thing in that arena, yeah, you know, I've I can remember several times where I've hurt a bull's feelings 
because I believed that I was meaner than he was, yep. and they believe it, you know, and, and that's just the way it is, and um, it's the same way with any sport, you know, I mean, you, anytime that a guy gets on a horse, if you get nervous on a horse, a horse is going to feel that, and it's going to respond to that, yep. you know, and it, a bull can sense your presence in the arena, and if I shy away from him, he's going to beat me, but when I stick my chest out and I say, no, I'm better than you are, yep. either he's going to believe it, or he's going to fight about it. Yeah. And I'm excited for either one. So the the poem that I've got today, it's a little bit about that, about like just being there was really enough. Like, yeah, I'd love to have been a world champ, but just the fact that I was there, nobody can ever take it from me. So it's a little bit about that. And then um, talked about losing Ross earlier. Um, just a few years ago, too, we lost Rex Dunn. Mm -hmm. And Rex was, Rex was one of my heroes. Like, I'll never forget... Um, well, the first big bullfight I went to was at Fort Smith, and uh, Rex was putting it on, and we got there early, and Rex takes me, and we walk out through the arena, and he's kind of looking around while we're out there, and he's like, yep, this is the first place they carried me out in an ambulance. <laughs> then he walks a little further, he goes, yep, this is the next place, but he was telling me about fighting Crooked Nose and all this stuff, and then we went to a bullfight at his house at Warica, and same kind of deal, we got there earlier the day before or something, and... Uh, like, just got to sit at his, at his table with him. Right. Like, we'd already ate. He hadn't ate yet. And so he's eating. And it's just, like, to watch him on old NFR tapes and stuff when I was a kid, you know, red and white, long baggies, little bitty steps, like, trying to take crooked nose, horn side, like, all that. And then just to get to see that he was a person almost made him even bigger for me. Right. And then... I, I was around and I was going to his, his bullfights um, and the bullfights he was putting on while he was really getting sick with his cancer. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget, we're at 801 year. And uh, like Rex was in bad shape. Like he couldn't hardly get around. Um, but we, because I was, like I was entered in the bullfights, but I was helping set everything up too the night before. And we get all the back pins and everything set and all the gates because it's, pain setting all that stuff up for fighting bulls right rex is in a wheelchair and we still got to like help him and carry him back through there but he had to go check and make sure that everything was just right that we hadn't screwed nothing up right but anyway so this is this is a poem kind of about fighting bulls and, and kind of about rex and it's called wrecked out at rex's it says i'm just another ex never was world champ but i i had my moments in the sun i have the memories of the people i've met of the road trips the arenas and the fun Fighting bulls was never my career. It was just a craving that I had down deep inside. But when fear starts to erode your cravings, the anxiety and trepidation are hard to hide. But one man sticks out in my memory. He looked fear in the eye but never blinked and did more than most for the sport to which his name will forever be linked. At a bullfight down in Fort Smith, Tad introduced me to Rex Dunn. Till that point, he was just a legend to me. I only knew him by the bullfights he'd won. I heard the stories of Crooked Nose, watched Rex fight at the NFR, but that couldn't be this feeble man who needed help getting out of his car. I learned that day he had cancer, and in the years that passed since then, every time I'm scared or nervous, I think of Rex again. I thank the Lord for my health that I've never been faced with a trial like that. I can't even imagine the pain and the struggle that went on beneath Rex's hat. But people say that the battle with cancer, it's either won or it's lost. Surviving or not is how they score it. They forget about the daily cost. But Rex knew better than most 
but 70 seconds is all you've got. Then the buzzer sounds and it's over, whether you're ready or not. The fight is scored, not timed. How long you last doesn't factor in. But when you got knocked down, did you get up and go to him again? Only God knows the time and place when we must all leave the earth. So the objective of the fight is to live that time to its full worth. Rex had to go to the barrel sometime and catch his breath sometimes. But then he was right back at him, walking circles around him on a dime. He fought cancer the same way he fought crooked nose and all the rest. He never stopped fighting or living, as long as his heart beat in his chest. Rex had been a master of handling bulls, never letting them control him. And he never let disease decide his actions. He acted on all plans and whim. Now if the fight is scored and not timed, and it's scored on control and aggression, Rex didn't lose his fight to cancer, but got to rest with the sleep of a champion. Now I never knew Mr. Smooth as well as some of the others, but I've been in the pen with some of my mad door brothers who knew him well before and after the disease took a hold, and they sing nothing but praises of one who fought and lived so bold, and his long baggies and his short steps can be seen in all of them today. From Tuck to Swish and Webster, they all do it his way. And Evan and Wacy and Andy, his style's seen in them too. He's quite possibly the most influential man I can say I ever knew. He taught us more than just fighting bulls. He taught us life all along. His voice was weak and trembling, but his words were pure and strong. You could see the pain in his body. You could see the joy in his heart. He'd say, a bull's only as bad as you make him. Now make sure you get a good start. Now I just look at my pictures, hanging on the wall. I remember the fights clearly, but one I remember most of all. We was at the Coyote Hills, and it rained the day before. All the top hands were there, winning would take a big score. I drew a little brown flat horn, I threw a terrible fake. One that I knew before I threw it, he was never going to take. But that bull, one of Rex's babies, he did what he was bred to do. When the horn hit my back, I thought he'd run me through. He camped on me for a minute till someone picked him off of me, and as he left I caught a glimpse of his branded rockin' D. And I looked up through blurry eyes, saw Rex on the chutes, smiling in glee. I got wrecked out at Rex's, and no one can take that from me. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Tucker, thank you so much for being here, talking with us today. You guys, don't forget, I love you, but Jesus loves you more, and we'll be talking to you.